may be seated. We've just been singing the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that He holds His own fast. He holds us fast. If you don't have a sermon outline, please just lift your hand, and some gentlemen will come and hand one to you. They're here right now for you. If you are joining us online, I want to encourage you, you can go to our website and simply download the message outline and print it out. It will help you greatly as we follow along in God's Word. Our, Bible, our church believes in studying the Bible. We believe that God's Word can be known and that it takes reading, it takes study, and as we do that, we come to know the words of life that help us so very, very much hold on to the gospel. Well, this morning is the first in a short series on the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a gloriously beautiful command of our Lord. He has given us the command to remember His death. He's given us the command to, as a body, to partake in this beautiful, beautiful ceremony together. Now, it is, it's become very aware to me over the years as a pastor that there's many people who do many things in quote-unquote religious life, and they really don't know the reason why. Um, that is true in practically every major world religion. There's many people that have seen the traditions before them, the people before them, and what they do, and so they go and they do those things. Um, this is true in Hinduism, this is true in Buddhism, and this is true in Islam. You know, Marcy and I spent time in North Africa and in Europe as missionaries, and we learned that it's very often that people, even in those religions, um, do not know why they do what they do. Well, unfortunately, Christianity is really no different. In Christianity, it's very possible that someone grows up in a church, um, they, whether it be um, a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church or some other denomination, including even over in the Roman Catholic world, they grow up and they see these rituals, they know that there's that there's certain things that they always do, and they may have either no idea why they do it, or they may have a sketchy idea of why they do it. And um, the Lord's Supper is far too important for us as Bible-believing Christians to have that be the case with us. We need to beautifully, clearly understand what this is about. If we're going to take the time and be still and talk about such deep issues, as the great sacrifice of Christ for our sins, then we should know it very well. Um, and so this morning, it's my prayer that we begin a, a short series here where we can really come to know the meaning of the word um, as seen flesh and then broken for us, as well as God's purposes for it in our personal lives and his purposes for it in the church. So uh, this morning uh, we'll be looking at some Old Testament passages that help us see the bases um, of the Lord's Supper. But as we do that, there's a lot of different images. Even the stained glass behind this title slide, you see the, the image that is there, and it's similar to this. The, the idea of a cup, the idea of the cup, the fruit of the vine, um, the wine that would be prevalent in the society that's there. And that large circle thing there is a wafer. And I know as Baptist life, we don't typically have the large circle, 
uh, piece there, but there's other denominations that many of you grew up where you saw that. Much more like the Baptist way, typically, we have plates that are like these, that in days gone by before COVID, we, were, we would pass the plate. We will come back to passing the plate again eventually. Um, we will make sure everybody's hands are clean, may even have hand sanitizer all up and down the rows, so we pass down the hand sanitizer, make sure everybody's cootie-free, and then we, we go on uh, with our life, um, right? Uh, that's okay to do. Um, we don't need to be paranoid and let this go on in a ridiculous way. Um, we, can, we can be cautious, and it, it'd be a pretty great thing if everybody kind of you know, got up to probably 99, what does it say, 99.9% of all bacteria and viruses uh, before the service ends, uh, and that, that allows us to have very clean hands for that and, and maybe to even observe the Lord's Supper. You know, before COVID, we would often say, now go and shake five, Pastor, Pastor Fred would say, go shake five hands before you go, shake five hands before you, and everybody's going, what does that mean, five hands before you, okay, seven, five, okay. Um, just kidding, Pastor Fred was always funny. Um, but we would shake hands with one another, fellowship with one another, to, to in, as part of caring for one another. So these images are often what's in our minds, the, the Lord's Supper elements, or maybe, maybe for you it's da Vinci. You think of the Last Supper. This is da Vinci's Last Supper um, painting that through the years has been so very famous. Some of you think of other masses that are observed at certain times of the year or um, various other uh, traditions, whether they be Roman, Anglican, Episcopal traditions of um, a large event of the Mass and then the Eucharist within the Mass. I'm curious, how many of you grew up Catholic in this room? Would you please just lift your hand? See, a good, we've often said a good 30 to 40 percent um, grew up out of some type of Catholic tradition. And for some of you, you went through confirmation. For some of you, you learned what the Catholic Church says about um, the Lord's Supper. Well, over these next few times that we study this, um, we will see what the Bible says about the Lord's Supper. But this is a beautiful thing for us to do. Notice our goal that is there to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper and God's purpose for it in our lives. And we've just said that many are confused about the Lord's Supper. There's, there's many that, that don't have a clarity of that. In fact, there's not unanimity on what to call it. Um, and so some would call it communion. And communion means with union, with union. And um, sometimes I like to call it communion because of that very idea, with union. And what is the union that we have? First and foremost, it is through the Lord's Supper uh, picture, through what it, what it represents, the sacrifice of Jesus, that we have union with God. This is the first union that it provides, but it's not only union with God, but it's also union with others who are God followers, who are Christ followers. So it means with unity in that way. Eucharist um, is uh, the, the idea of thanksgiving. You and then charis, you see charis that is there, which is the word for um, grace. The, the idea is with grace or with thanks is the picture. 
So, uh, in Catholic Mass, they would say, well, the whole service is the Mass, but then at the end of the service, toward the end of the service, it comes the Eucharist or the observation of what others would call the table of the Lord. How about this? The table of remembrance. And this is the idea of this is looking to the Passover meal. In Jewish life, there was the table of remembrance. And we'll see this morning where that comes from and the fact that the Passover was all about remembering. And so then, as we see, as we often call it in Baptist tradition, the Lord's Supper. We often call it the Lord's Supper, or this idea of this, these two things together. This is the last Passover that Jesus um, observed with his disciples, the Da Vinci moment, that Da Vinci painted, the last Passover that leads to the cross and points to the cross. It doesn't point back to the deliverance from Egypt, but it points to the cross. Some of you, you, no one's ever explained this, and this morning I believe that for some of you are going to go, oh, that's what this is all about. So number two, I want you just to, to look back into our Old Testament and to see what God was doing through the ages. And this is central to the overall redemption plan of God. Do you see that next to number two where it says, it is central to the overall, or, or to the, yes, the overall redemption plan. Circle those two words, redemption plan. It's very, very important for you to understand that as God not only creates us, but we fall into our sin, God has a glorious plan of redemption. And it's not just simply the EE outline or the four spiritual laws or the, the simple plan of salvation of what you need to know to go um, to heaven. That, that, it's far more than that. Our God is a God who has been working through the ages to bring about His redemption for His people. And if we are going to know God, then we must know this redemption plan. And so that's part of what we see in this whole um, uh, unfolding of this beautiful symbol of God's great grace and his plan. So letter A, I want you just to notice this this morning, that God promised Abraham that he would bring his offspring into the land of Canaan. So he said, Abraham, I'm giving you this land, and I will bring, listen to this, God made a promise. He made a covenant with Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless the world through you, I'm going to work through your descendants. You are going to have, not only are you going to have great descendants, um, a great number of descendants, but you are going to have descendants that come into my promised land, into Canaan. And there's, a, there's two pictures here. We're not only seeing that God has a physical place for his people in that era that he's going to give to them, but we also see that this is all part of the picture of being with God in eternity, that there is a promised land coming. So in the Old Testament, they had the promised land of Canaan, and we see as God's redemptive plan unfolds more and more and more grand, we see that even that is pointing toward heaven. Even that, we see that it is all pointing toward the glorious final state of being with God in a new heaven and a new earth. 
and seeing that God has a great promise in this. And so God is a God of promises, and he's a God of keeping his promises. And if you will, you can go back and you can see in Genesis 15, 12 through 7, Exodus 2, 23 through 25, you see that this is where we get the term the promised land, that they have a land that is promised to them. So God makes his promises. Letter B, God's people were stuck where? In Egypt. Are you all there this morning? Look at letter B. God's people were stuck in Egypt under whose rule? Under Pharaoh. So they had been there for 400 years since Joseph. They had gone there and things went south. Things went sour. And so the, the Jewish people were separate from the Egyptians. They, they wound up becoming slaves. The, the, the Egyptians ruled over them. And it was hard and it was harsh and the Pharaohs were harsh. And we see that God had a plan to show his people who he is, that he is the deliverer, because they were sinners. And so they had two problems. Number one, they're they're sinners, and and our sins cut us off from God. We, We can't come into God's presence. So they had a spiritual problem with God, but they also had a political problem and a social problem with their life, a national problem, in that they're in bondage. And so God is, listen to this, God is going to work through delivering them in their national problem, in their, in their problem of their society under somebody else's rule, and all of that is going to point to what? His true salvation. All of that points to the fact that you think your problems are here on earth. Your real problem is the cosmic problem that you have offended a holy God, and you must have his forgiveness. And there's one way that his forgiveness will come. And God is saying, I'm going to roll out to you the plan over the millennia, and you're going to see my grand plan. So this salvation plan is part of what God is unfolding. And this table, this table comes from that salvation plan. I want you to see that, that this is how it unfolds. This is going to make sense to you as you go here. Notice what it says. God's people cried out for deliverance. This is under B. God's people cried out for deliverance, and God heard their cry. God raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand their release. And Pharaoh continually refused through nine plagues of fill it in judgment. We see that God is judging the people. God is judging all of Egypt. And we see that even God's people are going through that with the Egyptians. We see that there's a, there's a great uh, catastrophe that is happening on an ongoing basis in this. And this is part of the picture of all of the trouble of a fallen world that has rebelled against God. But God has a salvation. Finally, notice this last one, finally God declared he would kill all of Egypt's firstborn sons because Pharaoh refused to let God's firstborn Israel, his firstborn nation, his chosen nation, to go. And so this is a, a direct picture of the offense against God and what God is going to do for his people and for himself. And you can go back and you can read that in Exodus chapters 4 through 10 unfold that, and then 11, 1 through 10 
we, we're not going to take the time to go and read that, but if, you, if this is a new story to you, this is a wonderful time for you to go and study that. And maybe, this is, maybe you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. This is a wonderful time for you to remember the glorious salvation plan of God. Look at letter C. God delivers his people in, fill it in, a very specific way. This isn't haphazard. It's not just left up to a bunch of humans to figure it out. God is working sovereignly, gloriously, and he's doing it in a very specific way. Exodus chapter 12 tells us that God tells his people to slaughter a year-old sheep or goat to smear its blood, very important, to smear its blood over the door of the house, and then to roast it and prepare unleavened bread and bitter herbs to eat with it. And then notice this, to eat all the meat that night. He said, consume it all. But daddy, I'm, I'm full. We're not done yet. You're going to eat your part because we have to eat the whole thing tonight. So it, the, the picture was that they were to consume it. They were to eat it all. And there was a reason. There was reasons for this. And they were to eat it all that night with their shoes on, staff in hand, and in a hurry. You see, there was the imminent expectation of deliverance. Now, for those who have been in the Bible for a long time, those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, do you see the picture of God's coming deliverance all the way back at the deliverance from Egypt to seeing what his promises are for his second return? He says, you be ready. You be expecting the deliverance of God is that you are to be ready and expecting, awaiting his deliverance. God wants his people to be expectant of him. He wants us to live in expectation of his help, of his rescue, and always yearning for this. There's no room in the Christian life for a lackadaisical attitude toward God's salvation and toward the world and toward all that's happening. There's an urgency that God calls us to carry in our hearts. And when you show me a Christian that has backed away from the urgency of God's holiness and his goodness and his plan of salvation and his command to take the gospel to the world, when you show me a Christian like that, you are showing me a Christian who has very little joy in their life. God has called us to be a people who remember that his he, he's coming again, he's coming soon, and his reward is with him. This, the, these pictures are all through the scripture. You say, well, um, we, we, we see that he is unfolding his rescue over and over again. So with shoes on, staff in hand, and they're to eat it in a hurry. And the condition was clear in this no blood, no deliverance. So the, the angel of death is coming over Egypt, and there's going to be death at every house that does not have blood over the doorposts. And we see here that if there's no blood over that house, there will be no deliverance for that firstborn son. 
Look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. For I will pass through the land. So this is the, the angel of the Lord coming. The angel of the Lord is, is sometimes a reference to the Lord himself. So this is, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am what? The Lord. And what is that? What, what, what words do you need to write over the top of that? Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. I, he's saying, we're not talking about the gods of Egypt. We're not talking about the gods of Greece. We're not talking about the gods of any other era or any other people. I am Yahweh God. I am the one true God, is what he's saying. And he's saying, it, just as sure as I am who I am, the firstborn is going to die under my judgment. In verse 13, the blood, circle that, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, this is very interesting what is happening here. He says, this is going to be a sign for you. And you're like, well, okay, but, but you're the one who says, I'm going to see the blood. Here's the picture. We see the community of faith, that those of faith have a symbol of that faith that draws them together, that identifies them together. This is that symbol. It is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want, I want you to see as we're looking back to the Old Testament, as we're looking back to God's deliverance out of Egypt, it's all pointing to the Messiah who would come. These are symbols that are here, but then we're going to see the substance of that sacrifice in just a moment. But notice here with me in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I love it, I will pass over you. I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So we see that, letter C, look up there again, letter C, God delivers his people in a very specific way. Now I want you to imagine if, um, you know, uh, this Jewish guy is there and he's in the nation of Israel and he sees that this command is being done, and he says, well, you know, a blood or a goat or a, or a lamb, I, you know, I think that I'm just going to, you know, I've got a rabbit here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice the rabbit, and I'll put that on there, and it'll be good enough. Or what if he says, you know, I, I've got olive oil. I'm, I'm going to get some olive oil. I don't, you know, that's it. I don't want to kill that goat. We're, we're going to need that goat. Um, you know, so I'm going to put olive oil over the top. And that, that, that'll, that'll be good. My friends, I want us to see that God's plan of salvation is always very specific. When someone says to you, well, I think there's many ways to God. There's many ways for you to get to God. And, you know, it's, as long as you have faith. You, you just got to really believe in whatever you believe in. And that sincerity, you see, all of that is coming back pointing to you as the believer, pointing to you as the ultimate 
qualifier, the ultimate Savior. But what we see in the Bible is that God is always pointing us to His salvation, not our salvation. The fact that salvation comes from Him, not from ourselves. And these are hints to that beautiful picture. Um, Look with me at letter D. God commands His people to annually celebrate this great deliverance. We see that after they are delivered, that they are told to continue to observe this celebration. You see, it reminds them that through a blood sacrifice, they were, fill it in, passed over. So God is is gently, faithfully revealing His plan to us. He's revealing His plan to the people of Israel, but we also look back and we see how He saves, how He works, and He is pointing them to a blood sacrifice. And that becomes very important in the years to come. Notice the next. So thus began the very specific remembrance feast of Passover. So then... For 2,000 years, God's people, the Jewish nation, is to be observing Passover, to remember that salvation comes from God. It is very specific, and it involves a blood sacrifice. I want you to notice this, Exodus chapter 12, verse 25 through 27, where we see that that they are to continue to celebrate this and to remember this, because we too have been told to continue to celebrate the remembrance. Look at verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, put above that the promised land. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, there it is, you shall keep this service. Look at verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, don't turn it over. Don't turn it over. Study that for a minute and look at it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when, once we get the Mosaic law that would come after this, we see that there's the command, teach your children, teach your children, teach your children diligently these things. When you do things, and then they ask, you be ready to tell them. Church families, listen, you, you have to raise your children with the understanding that they have to be taught the ways of God. They have to be taught, listen, the wise of God. Because the world will seek to answer those for you, and it won't be right. And so here we see that over and over and over again, we are to remember what God has done, and we are to, from generation to generation, not only remind ourselves, but then to remind our children what God has done in His salvation. So this Lord's Supper table we're seeing has its tremendous taproot going right back into the beauty of God's redemption plan all the way back to showing that he is a God who delivers. And he's a God who delivers, and he shows that very vividly as he delivers Egypt. You can safely turn over your sheet now. Look at letter E. 
This deliverance, this deliverance marked the birth of the nation of Israel as God's people. So God has a people, and He brings them into community, and they have a special marking. They have a special place. They have a special designation, and they are called Israel, the people of God. Notice this first bullet point, the people rescued by God and called His own people. These are a people for my own possession, that he would say. And so in this, we see the elective nature of God in his salvation, that he chooses to save a nation, and he chooses to work through a nation to bring salvation to his, as we studied in Micah, his wider people. As we see in the New Testament, that this becomes, that through Jesus Christ, the door is opened wide that all nations are to hear and to believe. But only the Israelites, notice this, at this time, it's his own people, and only the Israelites could eat the Passover. No foreigners were allowed. Now, that's very important. You need to remember that in the Old Testament. Yes, it was exclusive. It was exclusive to the people who were delivered, who had faith in God, and who were looking to God. You don't just come, share the Passover meal, and and they were told, you are not to have others join you in the Passover meal. This is for my people. Now, it's very interesting that as we're going to see in the weeks to come, as we study this, that that is the idea of this table. This table is not for everybody who just kind of wanders in and thinks, oh, the Christian idea, this, this gives me peace, you know, and I'm doing this with everybody else, and I have no idea what it means. The Bible says that to observe this table without having come to submission and faith in Jesus Christ brings great judgment upon yourself because it flippantly takes the great sacrifice of God without a recognition of who he is and what he's done without recognizing its holiness, it profanes the Word of God. And when churches allow just anyone and everyone, come, take it as you please. Hey, on your way out, grab a Lord's Supper thing and, you know, sometime this week, you know, just have your Lord's Supper. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways that folks do that. And let me tell you that the profanity, the profanity, the the profane nature, the common nature of not taking this table seriously is greatly warned against in both the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. This remembrance is important to God. So notice this, for a foreigner to join the nation, he had to enter the covenant. He had to come into the belief and come into the submission, the joining in of the covenant of God and be circumcised. So he would be identified. And then notice this. Then he could be considered a native of Israel. You can go read all of the picture of this in Exodus chapter 12. And the whole community is to celebrate Passover, and fill this in, to celebrate Passover together. Uh, Circle the word together. It wasn't, oh, you know, we're going to do Passover next week. We're kind of busy this week, you know. I uh, think the baby's going to come, and da-da-da-da-da. Well, you know, it, it wasn't like that. It was that the community of Israel on that night, 
on the designated time, is to celebrate it. But it's interesting that all, while all of the nation is celebrating it at the same time, look at this with me, though, the last one under letter E, it was observed in your house with your family. And so this is the picture of that, that God was working through a nation and he was working through each one of their families in a covenantal relationship in this. And there was a very specific thing that each family was to do as they taught their children, as they were families of God. Well, let's look at number F, or letter F. This national deliverance was to be personal from generation to generation. It was to be as if you were there the night when they heard the Egyptians screaming the next morning, in the morning, and all of the difficulty. And then the Egyptians come bringing all of their gold, come bringing all of their stuff, and laden him and say, go, go, leave us, leave us. You've brought great harm. Go and leave us. God knowing how to bring even his enemies into submission and to supply his people. An enormous picture of his sovereignty and his care for his people as he delivers them from Egypt. So this is a national deliverance that is to be personal. Look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 3, and then we skip to verse 8, and you can also see in Deuteronomy 26, the subsequent generations, it's all about us, we, and our. Do you see those um, out there to the right? Us, we, and our, because it is to be personal. Look at number 3. Then, or verse 3, then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were in bondage. For by a strong hand, the Lord, who's that? Yahweh. The Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. We'll talk about that at a later time. But I want you to see that God is delivering his people by his strong hand. And then look at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for, circle it, for who? For me, when I came out of Egypt. That's not only for the first generation, but that is for every subsequent generation recognizing the salvation of God for his people in its personal nature. Notice the first bullet point under that. The exodus from Egypt, we see, in the exodus from Egypt, we see God's deliverance came by blood sacrifice. The second one there. This sacrifice inaugurated a new nation chosen for God's salvation. So this is a, this is a people set aside for his salvation. Look at the next one. From this nation would come God's true people from every nation. So because Messiah is going to come through the nation of Israel, and Messiah says that people men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation will come to him and rejoice in him and believe in him and be there on that day. We see that the nations are blessed through this, God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Then look at the last one there under letter F. Every Old Testament sacrifice, every time a bull, every time a goat, every time um, a sheep was offered, every time 
pointed to the coming final sacrifice of what? The Messiah. So they were looking forward to a promised Messiah. They were looking forward to one who would deliver them from their sin. So that is the Old Testament picture that this observation is built upon, and we're going to see Jesus observe this. Look with me in number three. What are the origins of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament? So we start, we've just looked at the Old Testament. Well, this is, this is the big deal. Letter A, Jesus celebrates that same Passover with his disciples just prior to his crucifixion. In fact, just hours before his crucifixion, before he would be betrayed by Judas, arrested, beaten, tried with uh, mock trials or, or, or um, illegal trials, in fact, and falsely accused and then falsely sentenced and crucified for his people. Notice here, we call this the Last Supper. Now, we can call it the Last Supper, but we really should call it the Last Passover Supper because there can be a little bit of confusion with this. Just think about this. When somebody is, is going to be executed, um, very often, what, what do they have? They have their what? Their last meal, right? And um, that's, that's um, probably been through the ages that, that is, that when we see that sometimes made much of in stories or in movies. We don't want to be misunderstanding. If you're new to us and you haven't been around the Bible teaching for um, your life, you, you could falsely think that da Vinci was depicting a Last Supper where everybody knew that Jesus was, was going to be crucified and they're having a big party and they're, or they're trying to you know, console him in this and this is part of his last meal before he's executed. The disciples had no idea what was really about to happen. I mean, they, he had told them and he had told them and they weren't quite, they just couldn't see it. They couldn't see that that's what's going to happen. I mean, this is a man who can deliver himself. I mean, he can change the weather. He can do everything. There's no way these people are going to come and kill him. They're not, they're not going to. And you remember with me in the garden when they came to arrest him, what was Peter's response? All right, now's the time to fight. Pulls out a knife and lunges for a Roman soldier. I mean, so, so Peter still didn't understand the plan. We, we, we need to recognize this as we, as we see that God was working about His grand and glorious plan, but it was through what He had been doing all along in pointing to this. So the Last Supper should really be called the Last Passover Supper, and it really is the last true Passover Supper, supper because after that, the Messiah had come and fulfilled it all. Notice the next bullet point there. He turned the focus from deliverance from Egypt. You see, they had been looking back to deliverance from sin and death. They were to remember, yes, God delivered us from Egypt. They had prophets who had told them there will come a Messiah. They just didn't understand that the Messiah would die. This is a key thing to understand. They thought the Messiah was going to show up with might and power and deliver them from whatever oppressor that was over them of the age, whether it be the Assyrians or whether it be the Babylonians or later coming to the New Testament era. They were expecting a Messiah that would come and throw off Rome. But we see that God has a very different way of saving the world than we would imagine and saving his people. He comes 
and he is going to deliver them from something much worse than an earthly oppressor. He is going to come and deliver them from themselves in their sin and death. You see, he would exchange, fill this in, he would exchange his perfect life for, their, for our sinful life. Oh, excuse me, our sinful death. And I want to get that right. Look at that third one. He would exchange his perfect life for our sinful death. You see, the death that we deserve, the condemnation that we deserve, Jesus, who did not deserve it at all, took it for us. So his perfect life that deserves no death is exchanged for our sinful death. And he takes upon himself our sin. John 1.29 makes very clear. John the Baptist rightly declares at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist sees him walking up and says, Behold the Lamb of God. You remember the Passover Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't say, Behold the Lamb of God who's going to get rid of these obnoxious Romans but something far more important. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14 through 15, tells us Jesus fervently desired to eat this Passover with his disciples before he would suffer and die for them. You see, look at this. Jesus was fervently desiring to fulfill the Father's plan. And if Jesus, listen, if Jesus was fervently desiring to fulfill the Father's plan and deliver us from our sin, we should be fervently desiring to worship him and fervently desiring to be faithful to him. And listen, fervently desiring for his return. Jesus really looked forward to this and he told them, I have waited for this. And here he is about to go to his death. You see, at the last Passover supper, Jesus turns friends into family. Jesus turns friends into family. You see, when it was about the nation up there under letter E, and it was in, observed in your, remember the last one from letter E up there? It was observed in your house with your family. Now we see Jesus is opening it up and throwing it open to these are the people who receive me. That's my family. That's the picture of the church. The real family are those who have received Jesus, the blood sacrifice. That's the association that matters most of all. That's the eternal association. And so we, we, we see that Jesus is flipping it around. He says, I, I've called you friends and I've called you brothers. This is the picture of the reception of Christ. Notice this, fill it in. His true family are those who receive his sacrifice. His true family are those who receive his sacrifice. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, but as many as those who received him he gave the right to become children of God to those who have believed in his name, Yeshua, the fact that Yahweh saves. 
So letter A, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples just prior to his conviction, to his crucifixion. And then we see letter B, during the Passover meal, Jesus makes what must have been an astonishing statement to his disciples when he said, this is my body given for you. And here's what would have shocked them. Do this in remembrance of me. Why would that shock them? What, their Passover meal, what had they been remembering? They had been remembering Egypt and the deliverance from Egypt. But now Jesus is fulfilling that, and he's saying, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I am the deliverer. It's now, and he gives them this just before he goes to the cross so that after the cross, they are going to remember. We do this in remembrance of him, the deliverer. Notice this. He then took the cup. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, look at the first bullet point there. The long-awaited promise that God would establish a new covenant as seen in Jeremiah 31, verses 3 through 30, 31 through 34, was finally at hand. And I, I don't have this on the screen, and I don't have it on the outline, but, but notice this, and the next bullet point kind of shows it there. In that covenant, in that promise, look at the next bullet point, he would write his law on his people's hearts, transforming them from the inside out. They would love him freely, and he would forgive them fully and circle it, finally. This would be the final forgiveness that is offered, and it's offered through this new covenant. So if you go back and you read Jeremiah 31 this afternoon, which I would do, circle it, do whatever you got to do, Go back and read that and see this new covenant that is promised 700 years before Jesus would die. And it was the next covenant that was to be part of God's redeeming plan. You remember with me that God's redeeming plan is a series of covenants from Adam to Noah to, Mo to Abraham to Moses to David. It's a series of covenants. And now we see the new covenant. And it's that beautiful covenant that Jesus would speak of here. And here, this is very, very important. I want you to see the next thing that is here. As a, excuse me, as a wife or a husband wear a wedding ring to remember their commitment to one another, look at this, Jesus gives us this bread and cup to remember his love for us. I wear this ring, and it reminds me that I'm married, and it tells everybody else that I'm married. Mary says, you Marcy says, you take that thing off, I'll kill you. <laughs> so, you know, I, uh, the picture is this, that she wears a ring and I wear a ring, and this says that we belong to one another, that we are together. It reminds us of that. And that is part of the picture of this table, that each time that we gather as a church family to this table, it reminds us that we're his, that he bought us with a price. And it's an amazing price. And he loves us. He loves us even when we've blown it. 
even when we've run our own way in our own foolishness. And he says, I love you still because I have a steadfast love for you. Brothers and sisters, there is so much depth every time we come here. It, this is too good for you to have a cloudy understanding. It is, it is too rich, and it is too important. And listen, it is far too grave in its importance for you to enter into this lightly. You see, observing the Lord's Supper will help you sin less. Taking this seriously will help you decide over and over for the Lord. When you sin, you will be convicted, remembering that the Savior died for you. Why do you continue in that mindset? Why do you continue in that, in that sin with your hands, with your mind, with your heart, with your checkbook, with whatever it is that you have walled off God from in your life. God deserves our full attention. You see, notice this. Letter C, and here's where it all comes together. On the cross, Jesus obliterated the symbolism of sacrifice with the real sacrifice. He, he said, this is no longer just a symbol. This is no longer just a promise made. Now it's a promise kept. And that's important for us to see. Yes, we still have the symbol, but the symbol is not looking back, hoping for it. The symbol is looking back, excuse me, looking forward, hoping for it. The symbol is him allowing us to look back and say, this is a God who gloriously keeps his promises. Oh, that we would savor the fact that Jesus on that night willingly laid down his life. You see, God himself lays down his life for his people. This actually happened. It wasn't a hologram. It wasn't a neat idea. It wasn't a magic trick. This is the creator of the universe in human form lays down on a wooden cross and allows him. Jesus said very clearly, he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. And if I lay it down, I will take it up again. Amen. You see, letter C, second one, his blood washes away their sin, his people's sin, and seals them in him forever. That is the meaning of this table. He said, as long as you observe this Passover again in the future, guys, do so in remembrance of me. Not Moses, 
not Egypt, not Pharaoh, not a promise made, but a promise kept. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Lord, may we be amazed at your redemption plan. Lord, the Bible is not haphazard at all. The devil wants us to be confused by it, wants to be clouded. He wants to obscure, Lord, what you've done and what you've said. He wants us to be bored by it. He wants us to have our eyes on everything around us so that we don't see the things that are really important. He wants us to be obsessed with the stuff that's going to fade away. And if he keeps these little shiny objects in front of us, Lord, he keeps us from you. Lord, you talked a lot about loving God and not loving the world. You talked a lot about loving your plan. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that you would use these grand and glorious truths from Exodus and Deuteronomy and Genesis, Lord, from Luke, from Matthew and Mark and John, to help us see what this table really means. Father, I pray that for those of us that maybe we've never come to faith in Jesus, somehow there's always been distractions, there's always been maybe even intellectual distractions that, well, I don't understand, so I must not be able to believe. Lord, we've held out against you, even though your voice has been calling for us to lay down our pride, lay down our resistance. Holy Father, I ask that you would send your spirit now. And I pray, Lord, that you would melt hearts of resistance. Melt hearts of stone and bring the light of life and belief. Would you grant faith to those who would hear that a Savior died? And he died and he said, all who will believe in me can live. Oh, Lord, would you do that? I pray that you would bring true salvation to people in this, in this room today or those that are watching at home. Lord, I, I pray that there'd be a final submission. And Lord, that you'd bring just repentance. I pray that you would bring tears of repentance, words of repentance, and words of faith, saying, Lord, forgive me. Take me, make me yours. And Lord, I pray for Christians in this room that we would just never get over what you've done for us and that it would make us to live holy lives, that we'd throw things away that need to be thrown away, that we'd delete things that need to be deleted, that we would change time schedules and plans that need to be changed, that we may honor you 
and give you, Lord, the glory that is due to your name. So, Lord, help us to receive the gospel this morning. Help us to celebrate the gospel this morning. Help us this morning as we do this. Would you sing with me about the blood?